There are some things that we do as Christians that are direct commandments from the Scripture. They're pretty clear. There's not a lot of uh, room for personal interpretation. There are other things that we do that are an application of a principle that's found in the Scripture. Uh, The Scriptures would be impossible for us to carry if they gave us a commandment for every possible situation. And so there are principles that we find that we apply in every culture and every time and every context. And then there are also some things that are what we might call scripturally based traditions. Tradition is not necessarily an evil thing. Sometimes people think we should have no traditions. But it is important that we understand that tradition doesn't carry the authority that Scripture carries. It's very important we recognize that because, unfortunately, in some areas, tradition and Scripture have become to be of equal authority and power. And when that happens, we become religious rather than godly. And... uh, But having said that, God does honor some traditions, especially when they are based upon Scripture and they have an appropriate motive or a foundation. Let me give you an example of that. The way that we structure our services. Every time we get together, we start with worship and then we have the preaching of the Word. It's not necessarily any clear instruction in Scripture that you have to start with singing and then have preaching. We could have it the other way around. We could get together sometimes and just sing, and other times just preach. But that is our tradition. But it's based upon the idea of entering into His gates with thanksgiving in our hearts, as we sang this morning, and into His courts with praise. And so when we worship first, we invite the presence of the Lord to be with us, and it also helps to prepare our hearts for the Word. And so while that is not recorded in the Scriptures of thus saith the Lord thou shalt, I believe it's a tradition that God honors because it has a scriptural foundation. The passage we read from Hebrews, there is a warning that if you read around those verses, there's a warning about not going back to the Mosaic law or the law of Israel in the Old Testament, but rather trusting in the grace of God. There's an expression in those verses we read that says, not with meats. And what that means is it's a reference to the dietary laws that the Jews were under in the Old Testament. But it's also when that, you find sometimes in the New Testament that that is actually a statement that is designed to incorporate all of the law, not just the thou shalt not have bacon laws that were in the Old Testament. And uh, I, I have a personal theory, you may disagree with it, but I think that the reason... The Jews couldn't keep the law was because they couldn't resist fried bacon. But that's just my opinion. You're welcome to disagree with that. That's not good scriptural interpretation. Amen. But the writer of Hebrews reminds us that the people that that adhered to that law of Moses, that kept those traditions, it didn't profit them. It didn't produce the outcome that they hoped that it might produce or even the outcome that the Lord wanted it to produce in them. And so then in verse 10, it tells us that we have an altar, talking about the New Testament church, that the people who still cling to that Old Testament law have no right to eat from. And to break that down, basically what that means is if we try to cling to the Old Testament covenant that the Jews kept, we actually disqualify the work of Calvary in our own lives. 
because one testament replaces another, one covenant replaces another, and one sacrifice replaces, well, not just one sacrifice, but a whole system of sacrifices. And so that's what that principle is about. And so this morning, with that platform of understanding Scripture and tradition together, I want to teach about the altar. Not just the altar that we find in the Scripture, but our tradition, if you like, of coming to the front of the church to pray, to the area that we sometimes call the altar. And we get used to that expression when we regular church goers, where they have altar calls. But there's nothing up the front here that looks any different to anywhere else. And we have to be careful that we don't just use this kind of language without understanding what we're talking about. I remember years ago when we were still living in Cairns, there was a young lady came into the service and the Word of God was preached and the Spirit of the Lord really got a hold of her heart and and uh, I'm pretty sure the message had something to do with an altar and she was weeping as the presence of God just was moving on her and, and the first question she asked when she came for prayer was, what's an altar? And that's a good question. That's a good question if you don't know what that is all about. Amen. But in, in, in a modern context, in the, the tradition of having an altar call or, or coming to the end of a service and coming to the end of the preaching and offering people the opportunity to come forward and kneel or stand or sit, there's no holy position, present themselves to, before the Lord and to be prayed for, that modern tradition really has its origins in the revival preachers of the last century and the century before that men like Charles Finney and some of these other famous revivalists that you may have heard of. And the, the practice was incorporated or introduced as a way for people to make a commitment. Uh, in fact, in those old revivals, particularly when they were in tents, or you might have heard of the expression of a brush arbor where they would put up a just a temporary structure made out of branches and put a, a branch roof across it and they'd put sawdust down on the floor and church and build a church in a couple of hours and they would preach and people would come and out the front of that church that that structure they would often put rough timber what we would call benches like a park bench and they were referred to as mourners benches or somewhere where you went to mourn and it wasn't where you went to mourn in the sense of the passing of a loved one but it was where you went to mourn when you realized that you were a sinner and that you were regretful for that sin and that you needed the power of God to change your life. And so that is a little of where the history of the idea of having what we now very familiarly call an altar call. That's where it comes from. Amen. And anywhere that you cry out to God can become an altar. Your time of prayer in your own homes, uh, praying for somebody when you're out and about, you build an altar by stopping and and putting your attention on the things of god and crying out to him amen if you read in the old testament pre-moses you find that men like abraham and isaac and jacob built altars it's not recorded specifically but i would argue that adam built altars because adam's sons came to present themselves to sacrifice before the lord they had to learn that example from somewhere amen and uh It could be argued, and if you wanted to make a stand against it, no one's going to get into a fight about it, but it could be argued that the modern practice of an altar call in services is not found in Scripture. But I would respond to that by saying the principle is. The principle of approaching God 
in worship and sacrifice is certainly established in the Scripture. And the existence of an altar that was in an established location for the congregation to approach was first found in the tabernacle. If you read that in the Old Testament, you'll see that God gave Moses some very specific instructions, and we've referred to this quite a bit in our lessons on prayer recently, but there was a particular way that the people were to approach God. They were required to come to the house of God to worship and to bring sacrifices or to bring offerings to the altar. Uh, There was a physical moving from one location to another to approach God. Now, we understand God is everywhere at once. We know that. He's omnipresent. And so, again, if you wanted to really be uh, determined about it, I was going to say hard-headed, but I went for a nicer word. If you want to be really determined about it, you could say, well, I can pray to God at the back of the church, the front of the church, the car park, and down the street. And yes, you can. That is true. Nobody's disputing that. And yet, even though God is everywhere at once, He required that they came to the door of the tabernacle and that they came to present themselves at the altar. It's very important we understand that the combination of what was going on in their hearts combined with the physical presenting themselves to God was what made it effective. Very much the same as us coming to the house of God is a good thing. But what makes your attendance here effective is what's going on in here is our desire to worship God, to surrender our lives to God, to to have God change us and transform us. It's better to be in the building, even if your heart's not here. I'd prefer you're in here with your heart somewhere else because if you're in here, God's going to do His best to get a hold of your heart while you're here. But if you really want to benefit from being in here, you've got to bring your heart and your mind as well as your body. Amen. Because as we all understand... And we can all testify, if we're honest, there's probably at least one or two services we've been here with our body. But our heart and our mind's been a long way away. Especially if you're hungry. Nothing can transfer your heart and your mind faster than a rumbling stomach. So I hope you all had breakfast. Amen. Amen. So that principle applies when we come to the altar here at church. Yes, God is in the prayer room. He's on the staircase. He's in the Sunday school room. And yet there is something that happens when we take our hearts and our minds and physically come and say, Lord, here I am. It's interesting. You go to a lot of modern churches. I'm not throwing rocks at anybody, but when they turn all the lights out and worship in the dark and then ask somebody to lift their hand, nobody sees that commitment. There is something, there's something to be said for stepping out in the presence of a body of believers. There's a certain accountability there that people, hey, I don't care what people think, I'm responding to the gospel. Amen. And again, I'm not saying that that's where it's all at, but there's a part of it. But because many of us can testify of what God has done for us when we've responded to an altar call. When we've nervously got up out of our chair and walked toward the front of a church, possibly kneeled or stood, and, and somebody's come and prayed for us. And when we went back to our seats... We weren't the same as when we came to the altar. Amen. Now, to be clear, so that nobody says I'm teaching false doctrine, I believe that when you stand and cry out to the Lord right where you are, God hears you. I believe He responds. I believe you can get the Holy Ghost in your seat. I believe you can be healed in your seat. I believe that with all my heart. I've seen it happen too many times to believe otherwise. Amen. But there is, and often, particularly early on in our 
coming to terms with the gospel and responding to God, that's the first step. Many of us could remember that when we first came to church, the first time we prayed was in our seat thinking, Lord, do you want me to go to the front? You know, ever, who can testify that they've been in a service and somebody's preached and the invitation's gone on and it's like there's this war going on inside of you. There's this struggle. You should go to pray. No, 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 no. People will know I'm a wicked sinner. You should go to pray. No, no. What will people think? You should go. No, no. I don't want to be emotional and demonstrative in front of people. That's not who I am. You should go. And then finally they close in prayer and think, oh, phew, that was close. I nearly went to the front. We can probably all testify of that. Amen. Thank God he doesn't just knock once. Thank the Lord he comes again and again. But there is something liberating. I can't give you chapter and verse for this, but I know from experience there's something liberating about walking to an old-fashioned altar and presenting yourself to God, regardless of there's 10 people or a 1,000 people saying, God, here I am. Here I am, Lord. Amen. Sometimes we can make the mistake of thinking that we only come to the altar to repent of our sins. For many of us, that's what brought us to the altar the first time. Amen. It's also what's seen us return there again and again. I can remember many times as a young man in that age bracket I was in when Sister Cook was my teacher at youth camp of that struggle between the the pull of the world and the pull of sin on my heart and the, the fact that I was the Lord was dealing with me by His Spirit, that wrestling that would go on and I would go to the altar and I would weep and repent and and you know want to be changed but that struggle would go on because what i what i i understood in my head but what i hadn't come to establish in my life was that an altar call was a powerful thing but tomorrow morning's monday (laughs) and you got to get up monday and you've got to walk you know it doesn't matter how powerful your altar call experience was monday morning's a new day and so I, I went backwards and forwards often between repentance and then thinking that somehow it was like a magic pill that when I went to the altar that living for Jesus that week was going to be easy. But I promise you when I got up Monday morning, somebody else was there waiting for me. And it wasn't, well, the Lord was there, but there was somebody else there as well. Looking to steal that joy, looking to steal that fresh repentance out of my heart. Amen. Amen. But the altar... The altar in the tabernacle in the wilderness was also a place where people came to make offering for their sins, just like we do. But it was much more than that. You see, if you study it, and uh, somebody said something about doing some teaching on the tabernacle, and we may do some of that at some It's one of those subjects that you could start today and still be doing when Jesus comes. But, uh, so I sort of take bites out of it from time to time. But there, there was, if you look into the Old Testament, there were sacrifices that were offered on the altar continually. There was the morning sacrifice, the evening sacrifice, every day. There were other sacrifices that took place on specific days, such as the Day of Atonement. And these sacrifices were a part of continual worship to God, but on behalf of the whole congregation, or on behalf of the people as a whole. But then there were sacrifices that individuals offered to the Lord. And you can read more about that if you read the first seven chapters of Leviticus. Now, with the five different sacrifices that are generally agreed that are listed in Leviticus, there's an underlying theme that connects them all. 
And that is that there is a continual need for God and that there is a continual need for God's grace and His redemption. That So whatever their circumstance was that they approached God, that was the unspoken understanding that they needed God and that He was the one that they had to look to for atonement. Amen. But they had other purposes as well. I'm just going to touch on each of those this morning and try not to spend too much time. But the first one, not necessarily in any particular order, is the Bible calls the burnt offering, which is interesting because a lot of the offerings involved fire. But with the burnt offering, the whole sacrifice had to be completely consumed by fire. If you study it out, you'll find there were others that they were allowed to partake in and eat some of and share. But this offering had to be completely consumed by fire. And this offering, amongst other things, was an act of worship, an act of devotion, an act of commitment and consecration. When somebody offered a burnt offering, the atonement for sins they were unaware of was involved in that. But when they came to the altar, when they came to the door of the tabernacle, it was, it was an act of giving themselves to God in worship and commitment. The next one was called the grain offering or sometimes called the meal offering. And that would be made with the grain from their harvest. So there wasn't necessarily blood involved here, but there was bread involved. They made that and they offered that to the Lord. It was an acknowledgement, and this is only a basic overview, so if you want to dig into that more, you can. But it was an acknowledgement of God's provision and of His unmerited or undeserved goodwill toward that person. Again, worship was involved. The next offering that's listed is called the peace offering. This, this offering was also an act of thanksgiving, but sometimes included being the offering was made as part or a component of making a vow unto God. And then sometimes it was offered again when that vow had been completed. If they said, I'll do such and such for such a period of time, they may begin that vow with an offering and complete that vow with an offering. And the next one was the sin offering. Now, as I said earlier, all offerings have the underlying foundation that we need God to save us and to cleanse us. But the purpose of this offering was to specifically atone for sin, or in other words, to seek forgiveness for things that we had done and to be cleansed from defilement. When we knew that we'd broken God's law, done something that we shouldn't have done, you went to the tabernacle, you gave a sin offering. You know, each of these offerings is different. Different animals involved, different processes, different components. So when you took a sin offering to the tabernacle, you couldn't fudge it and try to pretend it was something else. When you went to the tabernacle, oh, he's got a sin offering. You know, when you come to the altar, you know, sometimes people are worried that if we go to the altar, everyone's going to think we're sinners. Here's a newsflash. We are. Get used to it. But back then, it's like if you had the necessary ingredients and components and you went, hey, everybody knew. Hey, this old brother, what's his name? He's got a sin offering. So you, if you wanted to present yourselves to the Lord, other people had to, I'm not suggesting that we do that. We come to the altar in church with a big old list of everything we think we've done wrong. But the purpose for this offering was specifically to address sin that we had committed. And the final offering of the five is what is called the trespass offering. This offering is again about forgiveness, but it also includes the idea of making things right, including restitution, where appropriate, with other people. So there's a, there's, a, there's a breaking or a disobeying of God's instruction that directly impacts other people. And so you were to bring an offering and then possibly 
to make when you study the idea of making restitution in the old testament you gave back more than you took so if you know if i stole a hundred dollars from brother gavin's wallet the first thing i'd be thinking is where to get that hundred from but but then i i was either found out or was was uh, the lord convicted me i'd have to give back that hundred plus i think it's an extra fifth so i'd have to give him back 120 dollars same with livestock there was an extra that you you reimburse i I don't know if it was like to pay for inconvenience or to to teach you a lesson but god took it seriously amen now all of the detail that you can study in the old testament about approaching god and what each of these sacrifices and their components meant serves the specific purpose of helping us today to understand what jesus would accomplish through his death, burial, and resurrection, and what we can receive by coming to him with faith and obedience. Amen. Every glorious example in the tabernacle and the temple is revealed in Jesus Christ. And every sacrifice and cleansing ritual you find in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Amen. So, let's bring some of this into focus when we think about our altar. Okay, there's those sacrifices we've touched on. But we're talking about when we come to what we call the altar in the house of God. Now, again, it's not a... The carpet tiles here are the same as the ones back there. They're the same as the spare ones in the box under the Sunday school stairs. They're not any different. It's not about just physical location. Because I've been in services where... There's so many people, you can't even get to the front. People are filling the aisles and overflowing over here and overflowing. They're still at the altar. It's not like there's a line you have to cross. It's, it's the action and the incorporation of your heart and mind responding to the preached Word of God. I've been at conference and other places where I just physically could not get to the altar. You go to general conference and you go down to try to pray for people at the altar and you can pray for one person, then you're stuck because you can't get through the crowd to go and pray for somebody else. So it's not just about moving a certain number of meters. I think we understand that. Amen. But whenever whenever we approach the Lord for whatever reason, there needs to be an understanding that it is only possible by His grace, by His love for us, and the shedding of His blood for us. And any aspect of my relationship with Jesus must take place through the provision of the cross. Everything that I need, any way that I come to Him, it's all through Calvary. He said, I'm the door. He said, I'm the only door. Amen. So, thinking about the comparison with the Old Testament, like the burnt offering, the first one we listed, I can come to the altar at the house of God to worship God, to commit myself to God, and to dedicate myself to Him. My sacrifice needs to be with my whole heart and to be consumed by my love for him just like that sacrifice in the old testament nobody took any of that it was to be completely consumed on the altar amen so when the preached word of god reaches into my soul and operates on my life sometimes i just want to go to the altar and offer myself to him again and to declare that he is worthy to worship him because he's worthy to praise his name to thank him to say god i'm just coming again to say how awesome you are 
to thank you for what you've done for me and for the promises that you've given me into my life. Amen. Now, as a part of that, there's something that's been weighing on my mind recently that I feel like God wants me to touch on. That's where everybody gets nervous, but it's not a bad thing. We understand. I just want to just touch on worship a little bit. We understand that the Scripture shows us clearly that worship is an act of the will. When worship is purely a reaction, you know, I've had a great week, I got a pay rise, somebody bought me a new car. There's nothing wrong with worshiping God for that. But if your worship is reactive to circumstance, it will go up and down like your circumstances do. Amen. And so what we recognize is that worship is an act of our will. It is a choice. What that means is some days it's easier than others. Amen. That's why in the Psalms it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. That's a statement of choice. And as a part of that, we understand that spiritual maturity, part of becoming spiritually mature, is when we can worship God regardless of our circumstances. And that faithfulness is demonstrated in trusting God even when things aren't going the way we want them to or when we're going through a hard time. And we understand that. We all say amen. We all believe it. Doing it is not always easy. But what I want us to understand, because this is where sometimes that is misunderstood, and this is the part I really feel like the Lord's really almost burdened me with, is that even though it is true that we choose to worship God regardless of what's going on, it does not mean that if we're going through a difficulty, that we should pretend that that hard time isn't happening or that our lives are perfect and that nothing is ever wrong. We acknowledge the struggle and worship Him anyway. We do not pretend to never find it hard. See, we, we need to understand that worship is an act of choice, an act of will, and that as we mature, we will worship God regardless of circumstance. But it is a misunderstanding to take that statement and move it across to say that means that we never admit we're having a bad time. We never admit the struggle, but we come into the house of God with a plastic smile, fist pump in the air, even though our world is falling apart. That's not the principle here. Amen. Because when we feel, and this is really important, when we feel as though we cannot be honest about what we're going through and when we're having a hard time we promote hypocrisy because we promote this idea that everybody should be living the dream that you should have your best life now as one very famous preacher wrote a book and that God wants to make you healthy, wealthy and wise He wants to give you bigger houses more cars and more money now if I could find that in the Scripture, I'd love that doctrine. Anybody else would like that idea? Just like the doctrine that once you've been saved, you can't be lost. If I could find that, I'd love that one as well. But just because I, they might appeal to me, they've got to come out of the book. And so there has to be this balance between, yes, I will worship Him, even when it's not easy, but at the same time being able to say, sometimes it isn't easy. Amen. 
Because we come into this place, we pretend our lives are perfect. We put pressure on ourselves and on others to maintain this shiny plastic facade when we're falling apart on the inside. That's not of God. Amen. Now, let me balance that statement by saying the opposite is not the best option. We shouldn't come through those doors looking like we're about to collapse in misery. Do you imagine if we all walked in? Stood up and testified and said, Oh, oh, thank God. I've had such an incredibly terrible week. I wondered if I was going to live. Faith building stuff, you know. That's the other extreme. Like many things, the extremes aren't healthy. Okay, this fake, my life has no problems, is a lie. And this coming in and constantly saying how miserable I am does nothing to help anybody. There is somewhere in the middle there. Amen. But if you're struggling, if you're feeling like you can't keep going, the first thing you need to do is to bring that to Jesus. The second thing you ought to think about doing is to find somebody who can pray for you and pray with you. Amen. It might be your pastor. I get people call me and say, could you pray for me? I've had a, I'm having a hard time. It is my honor to pray for those people. I don't get up and announce it and say, well, Sister Sons who rang me this week, you need to pray for her because she lacks faith. Or when somebody rings me, oh, I know what I'm preaching about Sunday morning. No, 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 no. We need to be able to be trustworthy enough to pray for each other. Amen. It might be a good friend. It might be a youth leader. It might be our men's or our ladies or one of our ministries. Whoever it might be, somebody. You know, you don't have to lay out all the necessary gory details. Just say, bro, I'm having a hard time. I'd really appreciate it if you'd pray for me. There are times you may need to talk about the details. You need to be careful who you select to talk to about those details. Please, don't do it with a visitor. Somebody comes in for the first time, you sit down and say, Oh man, what a week I've had. I'd really be grateful if you could pray for me. They ain't coming back. Don't do that to the visitors, please. Hopefully that wasn't necessary, but we put it in anyway. Amen. Yes, we worship Him, regardless of feelings or circumstances. That's not hypocrisy. That's faith. But it is not wrong. Sorry, it is, it is fake to pretend that our world is perfect. If it is, then I'm reading the wrong Bible. Read David in the Psalms. Take some time and look at the Psalms. They're not all like, my life is awesome. You read some of those Psalms, he said, Where are you, God? Why are my enemies so many? Woe is me. I almost fell. I almost slipped. I can't keep going anymore. That's in the book of Psalms. Read it. The man after God's own heart had issues. But the same man wrote, When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. That's the balance. We live in a real world. We have real life. And anybody that tells you that Christians don't have any problems is not a Christian. Sorry. Or they're somebody who has faith but a really bad scriptural understanding. Oh, let me clarify that. You see the same thing in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul. You read about when he lists all the things that he went through. He doesn't say, well, I've just gone from glory to glory. 
and every day is a new day with Jesus and I've never had a problem. He said, I was shipwrecked. I was beaten. They, they tried to kill me. He said, I, I've had false brethren. He'd been betrayed. He'd been stabbed in the back. At one point he said, all of Asia's turned away from me. Where's your faith, brother? That's not... But he said, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. He faced the hard stuff, but the balance was he had faith in the promises of God. And he knew how to worship God regardless. Paul didn't write... If you read Philippians 4.13, where he said, I can do all things through Christ, he didn't write that because his life was perfect and trouble-free. But he wrote that in spite of his troubles. So we need to understand that balance. Yes, as we mature as believers, we need to be able to declare that He is still God when it's not going well. He still deserves to be praised. He still deserves to be exalted. But you're entitled to also be human. And go to your brother or your sister and say, Hey, I'm having a rough week. Would you pray for me? Would you lift me up before the Lord? That's what the body's about. You know, when your toe hurts, you kick your toe. If you've ever broken a toe, it's not fun. I've done it once. You don't, the toe doesn't pretend that it's okay. There's this toe with a strange angle in it. Just saying, I'm good. Keep going. I'll catch up. Don't worry about me. No, the toe says to the rest of the body, ouch! And you reach down and you grab that thing and you try to make it stop. You know, if you're a little kid, you'd probably put it in your mouth. I'm glad when we get old, we're not flexible enough to do that anymore. But you inst- the t- your toe instantly communicates with the body. It doesn't just pretend, no, I'm fine. Yeah, I look a little bit crooked, but that's okay. It's the same with us. If you're having a hard time, you have a spiritual body. Again, there's balance. Choose who you talk to. Be wise in what you share. But don't do it all by yourself. The, one of the devil's favorite tactics is isolation. You can be isolated in a church of 10,000 people because it happens here. You get to thinking that nobody else is like me. They're all living the dream for Jesus and I'm struggling down here in my sinful humanity and the devil gets us all by ourselves and we get ourselves in trouble. Amen. Bless the Lord. When we we feel like that, we need to find a place at the altar. We need to pour our hearts out to the Lord. We need to hold on to the rock. Amen. The grain offering was next. Like the grain offering, sometimes I just want to come to the altar and thank God for His grace and His provision. Just feel the gratitude for Him and want to bow down and worship Him. Amen. Do we worship God in our seats? Yes, we do. But sometimes there's just something in us that wants to step out, get God's attention and say, God, you've been so good to me. I don't deserve your grace. I don't deserve your mercy, and yet it's for me every day. You've taken care of my needs. You've provided for me again and again and again. Amen. Like the peace offering, sometimes we come to the altar to make a vow, to make a fresh commitment. There may be an error in our walk with God that we know is not our best offering, and we want to change that. I've felt recently when I've been in prayer like the Lord's been just challenging me with that question am I still giving him my best it's not measured in hours it's not measured in dollars it's measured in priorities and what we value the most 
in our lives. It's not, well, Lord, I'm, I'm going to quit sleeping so I can work for you 24 hours a day. That's, that's foolishness. Giving him our best is the value that it represents to us in what we offer him. Amen. And he deals with us as the word of God. You ever, ever felt sometimes like when somebody was preaching that they'd been reading your emails? That they knew exactly what, they knew what your struggles were, they knew what your problems were? That's God saying, come on. Let's come and present that again. Let's lay that down at the altar one more time. Amen. We want to change those things. You see, in the Old Testament, this is quite sobering, but in the Old Testament, you chose what was going to be offered on the altar. You chose what was going to die. I read a statement the other day that said, sometimes it's not what we're offering on the altar to die that's important. It's the things that we're choosing to leave alive. And that's worth thinking about. And we, when we come to an altar, we choose what we present to Him. And those choices have a direct impact on that relationship. If you read the first chapter of Malachi in the Old Testament, you'll see how God felt when they brought Him the sick, the lame and the blind lambs. Because they weren't going to last too long anyway. They're probably going to die or get eaten by some sort of predator. Now in the New Testament, when they... They brought the people that were sick and blind and lame. The Lord healed them. But when they brought their offerings to him, he said to them, what is this? And he, he said, if you read it in Malachi chapter 1 and verse 8, he said, take that to the governor. Take that to an important person. See how they feel about the quality of your offering. You know, if you had an, you know, an important person come to your house for a meal, you, know, you go to a friend's house, sometimes it's un, unannounced, you, you eat whatever's there, you know, you throw something together but if you know somebody important's coming you, you don't just go oh well we'll give them that leftover soup i think it hasn't turned yet should be okay no you wouldn't do that at least i hope not if you do you may find people don't come to your house very much anymore but that's what the lord's saying he said would you give that to the governor would you give that crippled lamb that looks like it's going to drop dead at any minute to the then why do you bring it to me as a sacrifice he said they were defiling his altar. Amen. You see, when you think about it, the sacrifice that was offered for us on the cross was the very best. It was God declaring himself in flesh to die for us. He gave the ultimate sacrifice. So we need to think about those things. The altar is often a place where we review our offering of ourselves to God. We say, Lord... Am I holding back? Are there things you want to deal with in my life? Are there things you want to change? See, like I said before, the effectiveness of the altar is determined by what's in your heart when you come. If you come to pray because you want other people to think you're spiritual, that will be your reward. Other people may think you're spiritual, but that's all you're getting out of that. But if you come because you really want God to touch you and change your life, that will be your reward. Amen. It's amazing how much control the Lord's given us. Amen. Try and land this plane. The sin offering and the trespass offering I wanted to sort of put together because both involve the need for repentance of sin. If we trespass against another person or persons and restitution is appropriate or we should go to them and make it right or in some way go and ask them for forgiveness, we ought to do that. That's biblical. Old Testament, New Testament, that's biblical. But repentance, repentance is between you and God. 
between you and God. Let me explain what I mean. When we sin, it often involves something that we've done or said to another person. There are times that we may sin directly against God, but often when we sin, it has to do with our interactions. Amen. I mean, you look at the Ten Commandments, there's a whole lot in there that has to do with other people. Don't kill, don't steal, you know, don't covet, all the rest of that stuff. But when we we feel bad about what we've done to somebody else and there's a good it's a good thing to have a conscience and we want to change but sometimes we want to change because we don't like how we feel we don't like how we've made the other person feel and we want to avoid that happening again and that's a good motive but the power of repentance is experienced when we understand that we have sinned against god And that when we focus on what it cost him to pay for our sins, it's not just about feeling bad because we hurt somebody else. It's about, I've sinned against God. This kind of action is why he went to Calvary. It's when we are focused on what we've done in his sight that repentance is truly powerful. Let me take that a step further, just in case you think I'm making that up. You see, we need to learn to hate sin. For what it costs God, not just for the painful consequences in our lives. Amen. You go back to the Old Testament, there's a powerful example of this in the story of David and Bathsheba. Many of you know the story. David is the king of Israel. He's got everything. He's conquered his enemies. His army's out one day fighting another battle somewhere, and he stays home. He's up on the roof of his palace, walking around, sees a lady having a bath, is attracted to her, sends for her, they commit adultery, she becomes pregnant with his child as a product of his sin. In his attempts to cover his sin, he sends for her husband, who's out fighting in his army, and brings him home, makes up some story about why he needs him to come home, basically tries to get him drunk to go home with his wife, so that when the child is born, nobody asks any questions. There's no DNA tests, there's no ultrasounds, there's none of that. But this man's integrity is so great that he will not go home and enjoy the company of his wife while his brothers are in the battlefield. And so again, David tries two nights in a row and he fails because this man, even drunk, this man would not compromise his integrity. There's a lesson in that for us. Amen. Your integrity needs to be part of who you are. And so David has to take another extreme step and sends a message back to the general, the Job, and says, here, here's this guy. I want you to put him right at the front of the battle where the battle is the, the fiercest. And when it's really cranking, pull back. And Joab's kind of like, that's a bit strange. But he does what he's told. And Uriah is killed fighting for the king that's betrayed him and slept with his wife while he was out in the battlefield. Now, I personally have the opinion that Uriah had some idea of what happened. Before, and The reason I say that is he slept with the servants in the palace instead of going home, and people talk. Those servants probably saw his wife come to the palace. But regardless, that's, that's just my opinion. Take it for what it's worth. Regardless, he lost his life because of his integrity. But then the story goes a little further. And the prophet Nathan comes to David, and it's a powerful, powerful piece of scripture. 
he tells David a story about a man that only has one sheep and another man that has a whole bunch of sheep and how when the man that has a whole bunch of sheep has somebody come for, for dinner, he takes the one sheep that belongs to the other man and feeds it to his guest. And David, having been a shepherd, is enraged at the injustice and that prophet probably with a little fear and trembling because he was talking to the king says you the man and he said you did it you did that and david is it's like he's been slapped he's shocked when he realizes how quickly sin has taken him into adultery into murder and into cover-up sin will not give you a cooling off period Sin wants to get a hold of you as fast as it can and tear you down as fast as it possibly can. And so we know David repents, and it's the 51st Psalm that, that is, that is the, the record of David's repentance. And it's a beautiful Psalm. But in the fourth verse of that Psalm, this is what David says. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. Excuse me? What about Uriah? I think he may have a different opinion about that. What about the child that was born out of their sin that died as a consequence of God's judgment against God? What about all the other fallout? But you see, even though David had sinned against those other people, his sin, his breaking of God's word was between him and God. He could not go back and bring Uriah back from the dead. And he, if it was possible to make restitution, he should have. But his sin and where the repentance would become effective was in his prayer to God. And we, I, we would struggle, would struggle less if when we repented, our focus was more on the grief we brought the Lord than the hurt we brought others. Not that the hurt we brought others is unimportant. That is not what I'm saying. But sometimes our sorrow is because we don't like how we feel about how we made somebody else feel instead of, I've grieved the Lord. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote and he said, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Because even if you have genuine regret for how you made somebody else feel, if there's not genuine repentance towards God, it is highly likely you'll do it again. That's the reality. How many times do we hear stories about somebody maybe in a relationship does something they shouldn't do and they, they're sorry and they weep and they cry and they say, I'll never do it again, but the pattern comes back. Because that's not godly sorrow. That's worldly sorrow. That's feeling bad about a situation, not about I've done something that was why he went to Calvary. When we repent, it needs to be focused on him. That will take care of change in our lives. Amen. Bless all. Let's stand together. Sister Stanker, maybe if I could have you to the piano, please. I'll take a little while. The altar is a wonderful place. Some of my best memories in the house of God are from being at the altar. 
things that God has changed, things that God has spoken, things that He's corrected, chastened even sometimes. But when you come with the right motive, there's something very, very powerful about stepping out of your seat, walking to the front of a church and saying, Here I am, Lord. We need to teach our children to come to the altar. We need to model coming to the altar for them. You want your kids to know what it is to feel the power of God? Bring them to the altar. You want your kids to be filled with the Holy Ghost? Let them see you come to the altar. Oh, they don't have to be at the altar to get the Holy Ghost. That's true, they don't. But if I took some kind of statistics today of how many people were filled with the Holy Ghost at an altar, I'd say the number would be high. Some of you was in a home Bible study, which is just an altar in another place. (laughs) But there's something powerful about coming to the altar, about presenting ourselves to the Lord. We should not be strangers to the altar. And again, you can argue and say, God's everywhere, I don't have to come to the altar, and I'm not interested in getting into an argument with you. It's not what this is about. It's about the principle. But let me tell you, as a pastor, when it goes months and months and months, and there are people that never come to the altar, I worry. Not because of that 10, 15 meter walk it might be, but I worry what's going on. Because there's something powerful about presenting yourselves to the Lord. Amen, amen. Let's, let's just bow our heads for a moment. Let's just close our eyes and allow the Spirit of the Lord